Welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today on the show is Andy Smith. Hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, I am so pumped to be here. We're, we're glad to have you. Um, if you don't know Andy, he makes uh, booktube videos. He, he makes YouTube videos about other books as well, but he makes a lot of Malazan videos, and he's a part of the community. He's out there talking to a lot of people, doing a lot of stuff. If you've seen anything, I, I'm probably the postmodern Malazan guy. That's probably like my claim to fame. That is, that's how I kind of, your first foray onto the scene for sure. Yes, yep, yep, yep. How are you doing today, Andy? I am doing very good. I'm full of the Olympic spirit, so I'm hoping that you'll give me a gold medal in uh, Malazan podcasting. Sure. What, uh, <laughs> what, event, what event were you watching? Uh, I, t- well, so it's midday here while we're recording this. So it's all the kind of weird shit that's on in the middle mm. of the day. So, so far today I've watched seven on seven rugby, a couple of volleyball matches, archery and handball. I'm, mm. I'm really an Olympic whore. I don't know if that's, is, is that you're a saying people say? You're an equal opportunity employer. Yep, just everything. I'll, I'll watch it all. I literally watch curling during the winter Olympics. So well, curling rules, although I've never curled and it seems like it'd be a lot of fun. There's a local curling club here. I'm in Minnesota, and they do events every month in the winter called Cocktails and Curling, which sounds like like the best time ever, but I still have not had any time to do it, but one day. So as you can tell today on the show, uh, <laughs> we are discussing the Bone Hunters uh, in context of the whole series. So we're going to spoil the Book of the Fallen, the 10 books, the 10 very big books, if you will. So if you're not uh, interested in hearing the discussion of book six with spoilers, then you came to the wrong show. Get out. Um, So that's that. And now uh, AJ will play some polite music and then we will begin the spoilers. Wow. How about those 10 books? We sure have read them, haven't you? Crippled God. Except for God, etc. He's Kamensad. <laughs> He's around. Which means nothing, even if you finished it. The name Kamensad is just. I guess it's. I like. How, I like. Sometimes I think people act like that's a big spoiler, but I guess the spoiler is he has a name. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> you could have told me that before Gardens of the Moon. I've been like, whoa, and by yeah. the end, it means nothing. Yeah, but I mean, it, like, I guess you know, I, I kind of like it, but. Yeah, it's a cool anyway. fact, but it's not a big spoiler. I will say, since we're talking about spoilers the whole series, I was sure. thinking about my Bone Hunters reading experience today and the whole series as a whole. And it is interesting thinking back on the series that Bone Hunters is really where Erickson starts to make the turn to the long con, right? Because we've heard Definitely. about Definitely. we've heard about the crippled god and like the shitty stuff he does. The first time I remember like putting it together is Memories of Ice, that there's someone behind the tennis gallery and all this terrible stuff. And well, in, in Memories of Ice, they introduced yep. the crippled god. And it's it's just the like your I've read a book before tenth senses yep. go off. It's the big guy. Like, that's the Thanos, right? Exactly. You're like, okay, so that's the thing. And then also this is 2010, so I know there's 10 books, and I know that's the name of the tenth one. So you're like, uh, this, maybe this is the start of this trajectory. Exactly. And then like in the House of Chains, that expands again because we find out that the horrible thing of the whirlwind was also somewhat inspired by the crippled god. Midnight mm. Tides, you start to get a little more with the whole modeled sword. So like you're, you're like, and then in Bone Hunters, it's like, oh, this got this shitty, horrible guy is behind all the terrible shit in the world. And it starts to kind of come together and you think, okay, now they're going to go, you know, defeat this guy and then of course the long con is that the whole thing is they're going to go show compassion on this guy and that's actually how to defeat evil but but bone hunters really is that starts to solidify which i think is kind of a it's really is a big hinge point for the rest of the series yeah um it's interesting though because came inside and the crippled god stuff itself i mean i agree with most what you said but but as opposed to books because mm, not that much crippled god stuff in two um, to my memory. We don't know about it. Like, you know, it's revealed in House of Chains that the whole, you know, whirlwind yeah. god is orchestrated by him and mistreated kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. House Gate's not really. But like, I, but I, I agree with Shane that like his emergence into the scene kind of climaxes in, in, in this introductory half in the fifth book where, you know, I don't know, there's like four or five, six scenes with him where he's like 
talking, has all these monologues, and it grows from three, four, five. But he, from my mind, there's not a scene with him in the sixth book. And basically, we're more dealing with proxy actors for the crippled god than dealing with him, him ourselves. So it, it is kind of interesting how he drops off a bit. But I do agree with this. And this is one of my main memories of reading book six, is it's the first time I was like, okay, I get it. Like, I get what we're doing here, yeah. you know? Like, I, I like, and it essentially happened when in the second half of the book, when the Eater kind of show up in the story. Yep. Like, you learn that Carson and Ikarium are going to go to Lether, and then, um, I don't know if I put together the Malazans were probably going to end, the Bone Hunters were going to end up on Lether, but um, I was just so, so shocked. And I was like, okay, we're all going to go to Lether. This is what the book's about. Like, yeah. I, 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 like I, like I hadn't put it together or anything, but it was my first sense of momentum that like the, all, the, all of these pieces were one day going to intersect. Yeah, and I think for me, the big like light going off in that, not, I mean, the light never fully goes off because again, it's Malazan, but like when Karsa is like willingly goes with who you figure out eventually is the Tista Eater and you find out, oh, this emperor taking challenges. Oh, that's Rulak. Like that is where it's like, everything's coming together. Like, yeah, like you said, pointing towards this next stage, which I think is, yeah, that's that's the really cool part, that second half after Yigatan, where that starts to become apparent. And then obviously it continues in Reaper's Gale when we actually get to Lothair. So uh, looking back on it, now that we stumbled into that point, <laughs> looking back on it, um, what, 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 what do you... Uh... What do you make of Bone Hunters? Where do you position it in the series as a whole? It's definitely this kind of transitionary book. I wonder what you think about it and, and where you place it in your mind's eye. I think probably like upper middle class, so to speak. Um, so I'm I'm like a huge fan of the uh, more ponderous Malazan side of things. Like Toll the Hounds and Crippled God are definitely like- Toll the own. Hounds, shout out, best book. Toll the Hounds is so good. Um, I love it. I'm really interested when you guys get there, <laughs> how India is going to enjoy the thoughts on redemption and navel gazing of the Tist. I have to tell you, my 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 gut feeling is none of my co-hosts will like Toll the Hounds. <laughs> that is my, my that is that is my gut feeling. But um, I'll be on the show, so fight the good fight because yeah. definitely they're going to hate Namander because everyone yeah. does. Listen, even I am not a huge Namander fan, <laughs> but but anyway. So you were talking. You prefer the ponderous one. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so crippled God and uh, and Toll the Hounds are definitely like up there for me. And then sort of the next level for me is kind of the Bone Hunters Memories of Ice because they're still ponderous, right? Everything is ponderous in this series, but they also do have like a heart of kind of like action and things happening. Same with Deadhouse Gates. Like there's a push of plot, just like there's a push of plot here. But because of Yigatan, the Poliel stuff and like the Malaz City stuff at the end, we have three really, really solid action set pieces. I don't know about action, but like plot set pieces kind of puts it at that next level after my favorites. But how do you conceptualize the book as its role? I mean, I guess here's what I'm getting at. So so I um, I agree. I think I've been thinking a lot about the book, as you could imagine. And um, I feel this weird sense of like, maybe it doesn't work, you know? Mm. Um, and like, I like the book a fair amount. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, what even is the book? You know, I guess that's how I feel. Like, what is this? I mean, and, again, is that part of that? Like, I think Steve said on this program or maybe it was somewhere else, like the whole like it's two books kind of thing. Do you think that that just doesn't work? Yeah. Part of me thinks that it just kind of it, part of me thinks it just kind of doesn't work in that regard. Exactly. Um, I mean, listen, all it, and it's kind of paradoxical because all of the individual parts I actually think are really great. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I like. I like all of the storylines. And then there's these awesome set pieces. I actually think the climax of this book is like kind of a shrug for me. I don't okay. really care about the Malice City stuff, but it, but it's solid. I enjoy it, you know, but, but then like when I think about the book altogether, I don't really feel like it coheres into something, you know, like at the end of Midnight Tides, at the end of Toll the Hounds, at the end of Memories of Ice, not only are there these climaxes, but also there's a thematic cohesion in the story. Where I feel like in Bone Hunters, like there's some stuff that binds all of it together, but mostly I feel like it's a bunch of stuff that happens. That's all really cool stuff. <laughs> and I like all of it, but 
I do think it's missing a certain core for me. Well, I think, so before I said it's kind of a linchpin for the series in the sense of it, it pivots a lot of stuff, which is a positive way of saying it. A negative way of saying that is that it doesn't really do anything on its own. It's just sure. for, it's just sort of serving a function. And I could definitely see that. Like when I think of Bone Hunters, I just think of the Yucatan stuff. Like that's where my mind goes immediately. And then I'm a huge Ganos Paran fan or Perrin fan. So like I think of the Poliel stuff because that's where he starts actually being like, cool instead of yeah just he's like sad a, boy. he's like a guy yeah yeah uh he's not sad boy he's like becoming his ascendant self that eventually he is in crippled god so like those are the things i think of with the crippled god not as you said sort of a cohesive thing where all the other ones i think if you'd said something except maybe house of chains because i'm not a huge house of chains fan but like uh which i know is a controversial opinion in 10 very big books land but um i not a controversial opinion for me. Well, but doesn't everybody else like love House of? Ch- uh, didn't India really like House of Chains? My my co-host liked that book more yeah. than me, but yeah. yeah. At the moment, we'll see. But like the other books, like they do something, right? Like again, Memories of Ice is like, oh yeah, it's the tennis gallery and dealing with you know blah blah. It Deadhouse Gates, Coltane, blah, like all of this, like it has cohesive stuff, kind of standalone on its own. And Bone Hunters for me really isn't like that. It's like I remember Yigatan is cool, but yeah, besides that, it's like getting the chess pieces in place for the final four books. Which, like, you know, it, it's one of those things I'm not trying to, like... Not bashing you know, the book. Yeah, it's like, sure, I don't know. Things got to move around. There's like <laughs> a billion pieces in it. You know, I, I don't think it's the worst thing. I'm, I certainly don't think it's the worst book. Um, I think other books manage to, manage to convey a type of profound emotion to me, and I don't feel that way about, you know, I, at the end of this book, I just feel like I've learned a, a lot of what has happened to these people. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think we both of us, we've already said, are told the Hounds fans. So I think we're in a very particular sect of the the Malazan community overall that kind of likes that ponderous stuff there. And there is less of that in the Bone Hunters. The, the most interesting part, and maybe to ask you a question, uh, mm. that I think the reflection, I think there's an interesting reflection on the whole revolution or rebellion or shit show, whatever you want to call Dead House Gates and House of Chains. I think Kalam and uh, QuickBan actually have a discussion about this. Like, what were we doing here? And I think, whether it was all for naught. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the interesting, uh, the most interesting sort of reflection that happens in this book. Um, and for a little bit, Cotillion also does that sort of when he's talking to Sari or Absalar about like trying to like create this friendship or mentorship or whatever the weird stuff like relationship he has with her is sort of reflecting back on on what he has done but there isn't as much of that as in like even a reaper's gale or toll the hounds which is as we have said some of our favorites which to be honest isn't a negative i mean i enjoy toll the hounds but criticizing it for being too navel gazy and like just up its own ass i think is a super fair criticism and you know, I don't know. Of course, there are times when I don't enjoy the ruminations, you know? However, like, I don't think this is the secret to writing a great book, you know? But I do think the ruminations in the book are pretty good. I think some of the conversation, this is, I would say, the start of Carsa and Samar having great conversations, mm. um, obviously, because Samar's introduced in this book. But um, I don't know. It's just, I, I, I yeah. I don't know if I would have liked it more if there were more ruminations. Let me ask you this. Speaking of ruminations, I'm just curious. This Ooh. is kind of, I, I said on my video with uh, Brittany from Books with Brittany when we went over this, like, this is kind of the end of the Seven Cities trilogy. Yeah. Um, so looking back on this, is this your second or third reread? Second. Second. So like, what are your like, Seven Cities? Well, it's my first reread. Oh, that's, my... That, make, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Language and all that. Uh, so this is your first time doing this, like, Looking back on Seven Cities, I'm, I'm curious now, like, what you think of that episode in this series. Like, there's so much to go on there as far as, like, you're kind of rooting for the Empire, but it feels wrong to do with Empire, but the Rebellion is so bad and violent. And, I don't know, I'm just curious. Looking back on the whole of the Seven Cities trilogy, what really stands out to you? Interesting question. Um, I guess I uh, am a big fan of Seven C- the Seven Cities stuff in general. What I like is I like the diversity and setting. I think, honestly, Lether walks away and Colance walk away being the most boring of the settings mm. for me. I think um, both Genovacus and Seven Cities are places I feel like I know much, I know very well. 
and that I enjoy going back and forth between those settings. They both have really different things to offer. So I, I enjoy the setting a lot. Um, book two is, I think, one of the, the, the great books in the series. Um, and I think book six is definitely one of the stronger ones. Um, so I feel like some of the, some of the, some pretty good books are set here. Um, as for, uh, I guess the central storyline that occupies some of it. Um, yeah, I think it's very interesting. Um, I forget when, I think we were talking about in Dead House Gates. I don't know. It's like kind of a place of ascension and, um, of course, we first encounter this through the bridge burners, and now we encounter it uh, later on through the bone hunters. And it's kind of this place for people to transcend themselves, Coltane. Um, and I think that's interesting. Uh, and I, I enjoy it as this place to kind of push people. Yeah, I have some other thoughts, but I wonder what you think make, make of it looking back on those three books. Yeah, I mean, I, to kind of go to my bread and butter, sort of the idea of postmodernism and broadly thinking of how different perspectives illustrate how we view history and how we interpret history. And I think the Seven Cities storyline is so fascinating because it doesn't just tell us what happens there, but it tells us, tells us about the interpretation of it from multiple sides and how it changes the course of history in unusual ways and is is maneuvered in unusual ways because like in dead house gates we get so to speak a like the the facts you know in quotes i guess this is a podcast so i have to show my quotes like that what happens right coltane he's a hero blah 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 um but there's still some tension there because we don't root for the empire so to speak because we know the malazan empire has some pretty negative aspects but also the rebellion is incredibly violent, crucifying kids, like horrific things. So it's like this complete terrible shit show as war often is. Um, and that's kind of Dead House Gates, right? There's no real winners in Dead House Gates. Everyone loses. Um, and then House of Chains, we kind of see the outpouring of that um, and how different aspects of the continent have interpreted what happened in RN and all, all this sort of stuff. And then in the sixth one, we kind of see people using that in various forms to justify what they're doing, whether it's the Wiccans getting killed in uh, Malaz Island or in the Malazan Empire, like there's a culling happening there, whether it's uh, Malak Rel now grabbing power and, and making it sound like the Empire, you know, Coltane was a traitor. Uh, I just, I love the fascinating elements of in Malazan, you don't just get the cool shit, which often happens in fantasy, you get like the way that history affects everything in various ways, sometimes not even truthfully. And depending on where you are, how you receive information completely changes how you view certain things. Like it, it'd be like, I don't know, if we got like what the Northern Kingdoms thought of the War of the Ring and Lord of the Rings, and they actually thought Frodo was like a bad guy because he didn't give the ring of power. I don't know. I'm kind of going off the rails here, but like, I love that that is an aspect of specifically the seven city storyline and Malazan as a whole. Did that make sense? Was that coherent? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think, as you said before, the frames in which we view the things is uh, manipulating them and drawing attention to them is something common throughout the series. Yep. Um, now to touch on another point, I wonder what do you think of it? How do you think these books on seven cities shade the Malazan Empire as colonizers and their goal to colonize the continent? That is like the eternal hard question, right? Um, because at one side, we are programmed to root for the Malazan Empire because it's called the Malazan Book of the Fallen. We know the most Malazan characters. And if we're being honest with ourselves, most of the people who read this come from colonized country backgrounds. I don't know if most... I think probably at this point, still most, right? It's probably still mostly read in the Western world. Do you mean you mean countries that countries uh, that have you... a history of colonization? So, like, okay, sure. I'm a American. I, I, I get you. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm programmed to sort of even automatically before the bigger empire that is bringing peace and prosperity and you know democracy, um, so to speak. And so, like, it's hard for me to look past that because if I'm being honest. I, root, I rooted for the Malazans as I'm reading that in all of the, the, the books. But I don't think Erickson wants us to get off that easy because 
as we found out in Bone Hunters, like they're completely manipulative and the whole thing with the culling of the Wiccans, like they're, it's the same sort of shit. It's just being done in a different way. I'm kind of rambling here because I don't know if there's a great answer to that question. So I'm going to ask you the same question. How do you think the... the well, it's a tough question. Yeah. I, put you on, I, put, I put you to it. Um, and I think the, to me, it, it's a somewhat tough question because for me, it's an uncomfortable answer. I think, as, I think you're right. And I think that the book is somewhat stacked in the favor of the Malazans. And I think I, when I was younger, I think I kind of unthinkingly just thought it would be good if the Malazans won and, you know, that was that and like, you know, boom, boom, boom. And I think I now feel more queasy about it. Um, and I certainly agree. I think, uh, not only in, in House of Chains, there are both sides presented more, but even in that conflict, I think the book gives you reasons to like the Empire and reasons not to like the Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you walk away feeling like it was good that the Empire won or something like this. So, I, I don't know. I feel fairly conflicted about it. And um, I not not that, you know, it, you know, the book could be pro this and it could still be a fine book. You know, I just would disagree with it, you know, but I think uh, I don't know. I was just curious what you thought. I think it's something I think about uh, it, you know, it, with the Empire in general, because I think in general, the books are somewhat just stacked in favor of the Malazan Empire, you know? Yeah, so, well- well, I mean, I, and again, getting back to like the interesting part of history, like I think it's tempting to read fantasy because it's in an ancient context, like technologically for the most part. We think that some of the points they're making in these aspects are potentially just historical. But I mean, think of, so hopefully this is not getting too real, but I mean, uh, again, as an American, I think about the war in Iraq of 2003, right? Um, I, th- I think about that all the time. So. Yeah, like it's it's a like Saddam Hussein was a really bad guy, just like the rebellion. Uh, the leaders were bad guys that crucified children or abused, you know, chemical weapon, weapons on their people. But I don't think either that the answer is that a large empire that is also full of criminals and people doing terrible things to invade to steal resources from that area, you know, like that's not right either. And so it's, it's these really tough, I mean, it's a, it's a real world issue that Erickson is, is masterfully giving us multiple sides. And also, you know, as much as we are primed to be with the Malazans, understanding that we are, as you said, hopefully uncomfortable with that. I think if we're reading the books, I shouldn't say reading the books, right. I think my interpretation of it is that you should be uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I say I say the books well are stacked in the favor of the Malazan, but I don't think the books are uncomplicated about it. And yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Yeah, and I, I don't think I think part of that just part of what I how I feel is simply the fact that I don't know two third of fifty percent of the perspectives of the books are from Malazan soldiers. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So this just I think inherently is going to give you some biases towards the soldiers of empire, you know? However, going against that, of course, I think the idea that the empire is some good benevolent force, I think is, is, is not really, you know, the idea that the book is saying that is a farce. Do you know what I mean? Um, So of course it it is fairly, I think the book in general is the, yeah, it's tough. We're really just swimming in it, but let's keep going. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 I think the series in general is fairly skeptical of power and those who wield it. And so that those who wield power in the empire, are, I think, are generally like positioned as bad people or usually they get away looking pretty bad. However, man, we're really into it. So one time on the Discord, <laughs> this is about Bone Hunters, I guess. <laughs> one time on the Discord... I said that part of the reason I feel like the book ends up being somewhat pro-Empire or pro-Imperialism is because don't you feel that Kellenved is ultimately proved kind of right? Mm. That is interesting. I mean, I guess it depends if you think Kellenved continued with his imperialism or is his giving up of the Empire his giving up of that particular thing? You know what I mean? Like there's that... What is the decision to ascend? Is that him 
expanding his imperialism to now go to the supernatural? Or is that him recognizing that there's limitations to that and that what brings him to this act of compassion with Kamasat? Or yeah, that's right. Um, I'm getting my case mixed up. That I think is a very interesting question because the the opposite of that answer is that Tavor, for her to eventually be proved right, which she was, is she had to go against Empire. And really by the end, the Bone Hunters are basically a nationless force of like good. You know what I mean? Like that by the end, they are Malazans, but also kind of aren't. Um, and it's how, I guess it's how you interpret that. It, it comes out with how you think about the imperialist propaganda or point that potentially is or isn't being made. Did that make sense? I I mostly followed you. I mean, <laughs> I guess in my mind, I view Kellen Ved, I somewhat feel like the books believe, I think the, I was talking about how skeptical the books are about leaders in empire, right? Which I think it fairly is. I think most of these leaders get painted as bad people. And I think I, the reason I brought up Kellen Ved there is because I somewhat feel like if Kellen Ved was still in charge of the empire, I think Kellen Ved is like painted as a cool, good guy, you know? I, like, I think he's painted as a wild, crazy dude who, like, you can't trust and, like, you don't know what he's doing. But I don't think the book is like, oh, yeah, here's this dude who led an imperial effort to colonize half of the world, you mm, know? Yeah. Which, to me, is, like, a, something a bad person would do. Yeah. You know? But I don't feel like the book is that skeptical of Kellen Ved and the, or Cotillion. I think the, the books are fairly reverent of those two characters. And then on top of that, then in the end, they end up, in my mind, being proven that like, well, they've given up so much. They've made so many tough decisions and it was for a good reason. And they were right, which makes me ultimately feel like the book kind of sides with them. Mm. I think that's a good point. I don't think that's, yeah, that's so fascinating, especially because the first time you meet those two characters, they're literally slaughtering hundreds of innocents of people with hounds on the the shores of Contali. You know what I mean? Sure. So like there is those parts that shows like those bad things. But I think you're probably right. I mean, coming out of the books, you do have a positive view of Kellenbed to a lesser extent. For me, the like one that is shown to be like, I don't know, good is the right, but like Cotillion kind of takes a lot of the virtue in my eyes and in my reading, which is I not to say it's any better, I but I definitely agree Cotillion's painted as the more likable of the two. Yeah. He's he, he's sort of the one I think keeping the reins it seems like cotillion's kind of going nuts who or uh uh Vett's going kind of nuts. who knows if that's actually like real because calumet is so hard to get a, a read on but i think that's a really valid point of like is the julius caesar of this world you know the guy who won in the end is he the the virtuous one i don't know no and listen I, it's tough because in this big conversation about if the books are endorsing the malazan empire it's like somewhat trying to be binary about it. And I, you know, ultimately I do think, as I've said, I think the Malazan empire doesn't get away painted in some brilliant white light. I mean, there's lots of sections about how bad the Malazan empire is, you know, but I've always felt a little queasy about it. And, uh, maybe more in the seven city stuff than, um, the Genabaka stuff. And I think maybe that's just because the seven city stuff reminds me of American politics in my lifetime. Yeah, and, you, and I, you brought up the Iraq war. I think about it all that, you know, I think about yeah. those wars all the time when I read these books. A hundred percent. And like, th that's, you know, just in our lifetime, right? If we look at the whole history of well, the United States, we can go from exactly. The and that's why Vietnam, I'm just a Korea. I'm just a hundred percent. I'm just aware of those. Like, it's just a temporal bias of like when I was alive, I grew you know what I mean, but yeah. But that's why I think uh, to, to the positive side of the, this thing, I think you do feel that gross thing. I think that's a huge and amazing strength of these books. 100% agree. What other fantasy series do the main, all your main heroes adhere to a system of power that you are unsure about, or at least that you are shown to be unsure about, right? They're always like the good nation, right? It's always Gondor or it's, it's you know, I don't know. I was, try, I was trying to think about the name of the... Uh, Stormlight Archives series is. But anyway, like, it's always like the good guys. And oh, this oh you're killing me. I can remember it. Oh my God. It's, there's too many names. Keep going. I'll, from, I'll, from I'll Stormlight, let you know. They're the Dalinar is a guy. I wanted to say Dalinar too, but that's the dude's name. 
Yeah. What are they from? I forget. It's I really yeah, forget. I read these in the fall. I should know this. I actually I, I picked up Roshar. Roshar. Rosh- no, that's the world's name. That's the world's name. Oh fuck, you're right. Is it I wanted to say Lether. God. Look the, the light eyed people. Let's move on. Let's <laughs> Oh my gosh. I could but, rip never mind. I'm not gonna we're not gonna go on a stormlight rant. Do you know what? After the credits, we'll talk Stormlight for a sec. But um, <laughs> so here's the thing. I, I, I agree. Like, I, you know, I sometimes, which is aware, which is apparent on the show, I sometimes don't agree with the politics of these books, you know, which is fine. And the idea that I should like the politics of everything I read is somewhat silly. You know, of course, I don't right. believe that. But I think what I enjoy that the books are engaged with this type of stuff. And that are more openly grappling with the moral morass of this type of violence and this type of structural effort, you know? Um, So I I certainly don't think it's some, you know, terrible thing. And I just think it's something worthy of discussion, you know? And I certainly think some of the writing about this stuff has made me think about it in my real life and our world and our history, mm-hmm. which to me is, is a good thing. So although I feel uneasy about some of the, um, some of the politics about this or other stuff in the series, I don't, you know, I don't walk away feeling like, ah, damn you. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't. yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the things that makes Malazan unique and a good experience, but it's not, it's, it's not the same thing as finishing, I don't know, fill in the blank book and being like, ah, they did it. Our heroes did it. Um, it's just not the same. Which, And that's how I think the real world it should be, I should say. Most people are, don't think about things that way, but I think that is the right way to think about them. Yeah. Not only do I feel like the books are engaged with these issues, I also don't think I'm reading The Fountainhead, where it's just like, yeah, exactly. Bashing you over the head with shit. Sorry, yeah. and fans. Boom. Fountainhead call out. But, um, Fountainhead blown. That's no, not, it's, I, I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's good. I'm, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Uh, now, see, I've, I've like, uh, I think what it is, is especially since I just, we, ju- and we're going to talk witness pretty soon. So we, we both just, we both just finished reading, uh, the God is not willing. So we're going to make a podcast about that. And I, I, I was reading it and I told you I was trying to get this book done before summer vacation. Um, I'm, I'm taking it. I'm camping. And I was like, I was just reading so much Malazan, you know? And when you, you know, when you enter like the book cocoon and you're just like thinking about all these thoughts and like, I was thinking so much about the politics of these books and how they're structured and then different stuff. And I was like, man, but now I just feel this huge sense of catharsis being able to talk about it. And it's like, ah, what a relief. Yep. No, I, I completely a hundred percent agree. Especially it's hard with Malazan. Cause like, you can't really talk about Malazan without someone who's somewhat read it or is aware of it. Cause like there's so many non-starters. Like I've tried to talk to my wife about Malazan so many times and they just, it's not doable if someone hasn't read it. So 100%. I'm glad I can be your th- catharsis. And uh, I've talked before, you know, the main show, it's like a different thing. It's like, I, at this point, I don't really feel like I'm holding back that much. Cause it's not like me and you were sitting here talking about, specific plot beats and stuff, right. you know, but anyway, let's steer back to bone hunters. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we, we started. Yeah. Uh, I think we're like, we, this is like 40% of this. We've talked about bone hunters and then the but, other 60. But that's how these podcasts history. are really. They're just somewhat related, you yep. know? So what do you, uh, two quick questions. Did you read, uh, when did you read return of the crimson guard? And then number two, uh, if you read it. And then number two, what do you make of the ending of this book with Lacine and the whole Malaz City finale? Uh, so Return of the Crimson Guard, literally, I am 100 pages from the end of that right now on my first reread. Oh, um, first reread? No, 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 sorry, first read. So this okay. is, I'm literally in the midst of Return of the Crimson Guard. I have a lot of thoughts on that. So I did not read it like with the main 10, I was definitely one of those people who were like, I want to read the main 10, then I'll do the spinoffs, which I, after reading Return of the Crimson Guard, I'm going to double down on that recommendation because I am not a huge fan of Return of the Crimson Guard. I think the story is interesting. The execution, in my view, is very poor. 
I think it's a great book, but it's certainly messy. It is me- it is a messy, messy if book. It was, I think if it was like 500 pages, it'd be pretty good. But it's just, okay, I'll give you my 60-second thoughts are uh, that uh, he's, Ian Esselmont is trying to be Steven Erickson in that book. He's not being Ian Esselmont. And I don't think he can do it. He's not Steven Erickson, so he's not going to do the Steven Erickson thing well. I've heard from several people that when he sort of embraces his own style, he is very, very good as a writer for what he does. And he obviously has like, he's a good writer. I mean, very obviously, he's a very interesting, creative, like I love the way he talks about stuff, but he's not Steven Erickson. He's trying to do the Steven Erickson thing and Crimson Garden doesn't quite work. That's my 60 second thought. Fully agree. Here's 60, another 60 seconds on it. Okay. Like when I, I the, one of those, me, me and Iskar talked about it and we both like the book, but definitely its weakness is that like the decision to go from night of knives, two people doing two things on in one night to like, let's have 50 people doing 50 things. And then at the end, they're all going to explode at the same time, you know? <laughs> and it just, it just, it, it, a bunch of plates end up smashing on the ground and he doesn't, it, the juggling does not pull off. So I agree. But yeah. Which the only go ahead. The only reason I asked was because this is why I looped back into the Malas City thing because we're talking about bone hunters here. Yep, um, we is, really are. Uh, this is kind of the last Lassian stuff, unless you go off and read some of the spinoff stuff, which I, I was glad I ended up doing because I for something for that added that was I, that was important to me those Malasian politics. But I wonder what you make of this last Lassine stuff and where you end up walking away thinking about her in general in the series. <sighs> yeah. So th- again, this is sort of fresh in my mind because I just finished the the big battle where the SETI abandoned the, the Confederacy in Crimson Guard. So sorry if I just ruined Crimson Guard for somebody. But um, so it's like very fresh in my mind, like the whole politics of Kantali and, you know, What's happening there? And I think that's, it's very interesting what's happening there because it explains more the end of this book. To answer your question directly, I like that Lacine, who should be a main character, just like isn't. And Erickson refuses to make her a main character, refuses to explain to you the levers of power, the pressures she's under, why she can't do any of this, just like focuses on Tavor and what this means for Tavor and the Bone Hunters. So I, I appreciate that the end of this book is kind of crazy like all of a sudden just like the claw are going nuts and you're running around malaz city and kalam dies uh you know like all this kind of weird stuff just kind of happens um and then they're going off on the on the sail ship is the um i'm actually forgetting is this where she does she give the speech of being uh forgotten or or not remembering in this book or is that in reaper's gale who uh, not Lacine, uh Tavor. Does she give her Bone Hunter speech in this book or the next book? I don't know what speech you're talking about, but I don't remember it in this book. So but unless <laughs> I'm just turned okay. around. Um, what does she say? That they're the forgotten or they're the uh, the nameless? I forget. Um, but I think it must be in Reaper's Gale. But um, basically, my so- Thoughts on Lacine is that she is not that important to this story, which is weird, but I like. Yeah, it's interesting because I agree. And I think it really threw me off the first time reading it. Because yep. especially in... Because I went from Game of Thrones, which is so soaked with court drama, yep. to reading uh, these books. So when you're... It's like, oh, there's Lacine and she betrayed the Emperor. And she's kind of the villain of Gardens of the Moon. She's kind of the big bad in Gardens yep. of the Moon in a way. You're like, wow, she's going to be a major character in this story. And she's, you know, she's a somewhat important character, but really she's a minor character overall. Um, yeah. And in this book, uh, uh, like the reason I was so excited at the end of Bonehearts, I remember was like, okay, hey, now I'm finally going to get it right. Like, all right, what the fuck, Lacine? Like, tell me why you did this to the bridge burners or did you do this to the bridge burners? Was it an accident? Like you... I'm expecting, even though I shouldn't expect by this point, like the scene where they talk about everything, but like it never happens. It's like all sort of unsaid or, you know, she reports, Tavor reports to her and then all hell breaks loose. And that's it. Like there's not that scene. Yeah. What is funny is I do think in some ways 
for me, the Malaz City finale is uh, kind of just like nothing. I don't care about it. Mm. Um, and um, I mean, it's fine and all. But I think uh, what strikes me as surprising is I think this whole book is really one of the most straightforward books in the whole series. You know, basically there's a plot and you're going to get what you kind of think you're going to get. And it kind of goes for goes through all the beats. And then by the end of it, you kind of got there, you know. And here's what I want to contrast it to. The end of House of Chains, which I don't like and many people uh, find uh, which many people find anticlimactic. You know, I think this is a thing people feel like it's like, oh, and then kind of nothing happened. You know? yeah. But and then other people are like, well, that's the point. It's blah, blah, blah. You know? And, you know, God bless. But <laughs> House of Chains, if you look at some of the other books, I would point to, I think, Reaper's Gale somewhat have endings that kind of swerve away from what you thought we were going to do. And we end up somewhere else or that we end up in the place maybe. But like we took a weird route to get there. You know, and if you contrast it to a book like this, where, you know, early on, they're like, well, we're going to go to Yucatan and have a battle. They go to Yucatan. There's a battle. Oh, there's a it's a bit different than you thought. But basically, they fight the people and that's the thing, you know, and then they're like, we're going to go to Malaz City and confront Lassine. And I I, I don't know. I, I like I don't think I was surprised at all at the ever reading this book except from when the eater showed up and I realized that I like stepped outside of my own, the moment for one second to think about the book in a greater context. I was like, Oh yeah, I guess they're going to be in the story too. You know? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. It is a very straightforward, like the only really like rope-a-dope as far as the ending is that there is no like real explanation or like, you know, confrontation of Lacine. It's just kind of like, Oh no, the empire's changed. We're getting out. Um, But like, even that's not, it, it just happens, and then the ending happens. So this time standing out to me, another thing that really stood out was the Haboric stuff, which I think the first time through, that stuff just makes no sense, and I'm just like, just like a big shrug, like, I guess so. Mm-hmm. But this time, I'm like, damn, I wish the whole book was about this. Do you know what I mean? Or just like, can we talk more about Haboric for once, you know? Because I think it's weird, because he shows up later, and even when he shows up later, he's not even that... He's just kind of around, you know, but it feels I feel like he should be more important than he is, you know? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. What is what is he Boric like? What's his function here? Because he does. You're right. He's not like a major character, but he does keep popping up. And so Erickson like is putting him in front of the reader a lot. I'm curious because I I haven't reread the books. And for me, the first round was exactly as you described. Right. It's all just like what the hell, jade statues, you know, going to space and hearing voices, blah, blah, blah. Like, what is, what is, what, why is he put in front of us as the reader as much as he is? Because I agree he's fascinating, but I still don't really know, I think, why in my head. To me, he's a character, and of course his roles as both the priest and historian uh, belie this, in that he is someone that often brings people out of their own perspective. And especially in conversations with Fellison and Deadhouse Gates, and then with Crocus and Cutter in books four and six, uh, sorry, in book six, he is someone I feel that is often taking narrators that are often young people who have not, or who, who, who aren't thinking outside of themselves and are trying to bring them out into the rest of the world and into history or into faith. Um, in, into the metaphysical. So I, I think that's kind of how I conceptualize his character. And then there's just also a bunch of these like plot elements layered onto it that is like a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat. Right. Um, but um, no, I, I just, I've always found something charming about it. And then when, with the Jade stuff, the Jade stuff just remains unknowable, you know, which I just far prefer. Um, so. <laughs> and he is the one, right? with his hands that actually brought Fenir into the physical world. Is that how that worked? Or am I yeah, that's in book two though, right? Yeah. But yeah, that, yeah. that I think has repercussions in crippled God because Fenir oh, yeah, is, is the one, obviously that he's able to die. And so the blood and all that, now we are talking spoilers for everything, but it is interesting that like, you're right. Like as a mentor, like that character makes sense. 
But that also tacked on is this crazy shit Jade stuff with the crippled God and that he's a priest of Fenir that brought like there's there's so much weird stuff to him that does make him that sort of like mysterious figure as well. Uh, not just like, you know, I don't know, a Gandalf or something. Yeah, well, I think he's more. Well, the last thing I want to touch on here before we uh, kind of wrap up um, is uh, the first throne storyline. Yeah. Which is the only, like, I feel everything else in this book is, like, fairly focused on the Bone Hunters. If, right. Even the Absalar stuff, she ends up spending time with them, Perrin's around, but Perrin's story still feels wet, weaved into the greater Seven City story. How do you think about this incident at the First Throne and Akarium? And, I don't know, do you walk away feeling like that's something you remember in this book? Or I don't think, when I think about the Akarium storyline... I don't think of like one book in particular because it's so sprinkled throughout all of them. So to be honest, uh, agreed. Like, because is this where Tarlac Veed first shows up, or is he there before? Yeah, this is when Tarlac Veed takes control. Yeah, so to which speak. I, I agree. I think you talked about it in one of your nearest podcasts that like everyone hates him, and I totally agree. The spitting with the <laughs> hair thing is disgusting. But he's the best. He's one of the best characters. Uh, he's <laughs> he's one of the most fun villains. You know. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. He's very he hams it up quite a lot. No. Um, which is always fun. But so yeah, the Akarium stuff, I don't specifically like I don't think Bone Hunters and I think Akarium, but I think like his constant wandering, especially now that Mappo is not away from him, is in, especially now knowing the ending of all of those storylines, which is somewhat unfulfilling, um, I think. Uh not in a bad yeah. way. I think in a good way. The the okay. Akarium how Akarium sort of ends and Mappo doesn't really unite with him. It's so interesting because that's such a focus of the next couple of books, not a focus, but like, it's always there. It's always there. It's always there. And there's no, I don't know if redemption is the right word. There's no like satisfying ending to that, which I think is fine. I think that's actually quite a beautiful way to do that, but I don't know. It's not specific in bone hunter. So I don't really have a clear answer for that. The first throne thing is, also fascinating i think because i know how that ends in that like weird trick of the illusion of the throne right and so you know sure. that there's going to be all this terrible stuff that happens and in the end it's going to be kellen Ved doing some kind of trickery that like ends this conflict after so much blood so that is a storyline that kind of like loses a little bit of something in retrospect because i think the ending is sort of i don't know it's not cheap but i just know that it doesn't no, I agree. I, one of one of the things Daniel Green put out some video talking about his thoughts on the whole series finale and how everything goes, you know. And an analogy he used, which I which I was interesting to think about, was he said that uh, it is not Marvel where all the plot threads are going to come together and tie neatly together, you know. Mm-hmm. Which is something I really agree with. I mean. Uh, and it's, it's been true since book one um, with, you know, which is both, uh, I think it ultimately because, you know, I don't know. There's pros and cons. One of the pros is that he's following, Erickson's following things thematically through. He's picking things that are important and he's trying to tell things with purpose and he's leaving things behind that he doesn't need anymore. And some things, some stories are only so long, you know, and they don't need to be mm-hmm. that long, you know, so that that's a strong choice. But you know, there's certainly just some storylines throughout the 10 books, the 3 million words or so, that kind of just show up and then kind of just fizzle off into nothing. Yep. And there is a certain dis- just like unsatisfying element to that. And I certainly feel like this, that storyline is just one of those that it's like, ah, yeah, and then that kind of just goes away. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. We're doing other stuff now, you know? Right. And I think... I think there's also the opposite of that, where there's like storylines that start really fizzily, but then like have a great ending, which I think the the shake is a great example of that, right? Like great in, example in Reaper's Gale and however much they show up in like Dust of Dreams. I'm just like, oh my god! You're like, what are we doing? <laughs> so for sure, I don't care what why Queen of whatever the fuck. But then like the ending of that in in Crippled God is some of my favorite shit ever. Like that, it's just like a fantastic ending that also, you know, unbeknownst to any of us, wraps up the whole Tisty Andy story 
that maybe not wraps up completely, but like does a pretty good job at that, which is something that's been, you know, totally on the other side of, you know, we didn't know that was going to happen. And so uh, it is so uh, maybe to plug myself in that postmodernism and uh, post-structuralism video, this is like part of that idea of post-structuralism that is pushing against sort of the traditional uh, organization of narratives that they have to check off gun things, so to speak, in the sense of like every element of a story is important for the story that you are telling. Um, and in some ways, uh, Erickson is trying to have it both ways, which I think is an interesting experiment because there is an overall arching story for sure um, that ends, I think, in a very satisfying way. But there are also, as you say, those various elements that don't really affect that overall story at all. Um, but they're also important because of the perspective that we give to it, right? Like the first throne care uh, thing to me is not that interesting. Um, but like if you put yourself in the mind of one of those children that's fighting, like that's the most important part of these books. You know what I mean? And, and it's coming back to that sort of point of view and how we relate importance to what's happening based on our perspective, which I think is fascinating. And uh, to build to it as well, I mean, listen, we've, I mentioned it's unsatisfying, but that doesn't mean, like, I think often there's just, it's important in a short-term thematic sense, you know, and it's it moves on. And it's uh, it's also just kind of real life. I mean, things are transient. People are in your life for a bit. People go away. Things are there. I mean, what was important to you 10 years ago is probably not going to climax into some big part of your life right now. You know, mm -hmm. it could. Some things do, but not all things. Some things you work a job for six months and that's your entire existence there. Do you know what I mean? It's just that. However, on a narrative function, it can be unsatisfying. And I don't think it's, you know, we can recognize that and that's, you know, have that recognition. Um, but to go what you're saying, to touch on this post-structuralist point, to tie it back to the beginning of talking about the structure of this book in some way. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to a friend about this in that, you know, this rhythm of stories, this structure of your typical story is just so in our bones. You know, mm -hmm. we're like, it's just there from our childhood. It's just in everything we see, you know, boom, 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 these certain beats, how things work. So whenever any story really veers off this path, you know, and just is doing it's a separate thing. It's working with a different structure. It, it like instantly, I, you can feel it in your body. You know, you're like, what's, you know, you feel untethered. You don't know what's happening. You're like, shouldn't we be, shouldn't there be rising action here? What, what's going on? You know what I mean, like, and not that that's inherently wrong. It, it's like, fine, of course, lots of stories I love are breaking from this structure. But there's also this unknown element which is kind of how I've always viewed as you're kind of playing with fire in a way, because I don't think anything's wrong with this typical structure. Lots of stories I love and stories I think are great are, you know, right on the rails, you know, but when you go off it, there is this like, okay, well, you have to build a structure that's going to deliver something just as satisfying as doing the normal stuff, you know? And I think about when you're untethered and, you know, we're building something kind of wholly new. We're playing with a new type of structure. There is just a more volatile element here. And I don't think this book totally collapses under creating that new structure. I just think it builds a very funky looking structure that is, you know, Erickson calls it two books put together. Uh, I don't know if I would go that. I, I don't know if I would call it that, but I do get what he's getting at. It is a kind of bifurcated story. So it's a... It's a very weird book in some ways and not in not in other ways where it's like, I think the House of Chains is a very weird book. I just think Bone Hunters, you know, what's this? You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's a great ending to that uh, monologue. Bone Hunters, what's this? Um, but I, yeah, I think that's that's fascinating because the the point that post-structuralism is making of structuralism is not that structures are bad but that structures are imposed by those who approach the story, whether that's the author or the reader. And it's interesting that a book like this that doesn't have a traditional structure, we still have to talk about how we view the structure. Like in this discussion we've had, you know, whether it is Erickson's view as the author, that it's a, kind of like two books in one, whether it's what you just described as like, 
this sort of like very A to B, you know, you kind of get what you expect structure or this, you know, wildly a divergent series of smaller structures, like all of them we are imposing on what we hear because that's, we are, we are story making beings. That would be what a post-structuralist would say. And I think is interesting about this discussion. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Okay. And I, I think that's in a philosophical and sort of metaphysical way. It's interesting because that is also how we live our actual lives. There's no real, Sorry to break it to everybody. There's no real like structure in the world. What? Like there, it's maybe this. This is my own personal bias, maybe, but like it's mostly chaos. But we we build our own structures inside of it, our own stories inside of it. If I asked anyone to tell me about their childhood, they would probably like tell me a cohesive narrative. Where like it really wasn't. You know what I mean? And so I think that's the interesting reflection on these more post-structuralist stories is that you, as the reader, are left to impose that structure. And just like, I mean, at the beginning, before you even talked about any of this stuff, you asked like, Bone Hunters, what do you remember about it? And then I gave sort of the structure of how I see it in the whole series. But that's me reading yeah. into it in my experience in a lot of different ways, which I think it's just a fascinating way that somehow I think Erickson has done this really, really well where both of those things are possible at the same time. You know, I, when you asked me that question, I talked about how I saw the structure of the series as a whole and how I saw, you know, the bone hunters do that. But when I described that, I didn't, I wasn't thinking at all of Icarium or uh, this first throne discussion or even some of the more minor like discussions of the, the regulars, which is a large part of this book, but I am imposing the structure as I understand it. I think that's a really interesting point that Erickson somehow is able to kind of sneak in while also telling like, a very interesting story. Well, Andy, thank you for coming on the show today. If you want to check out some more Andy Smith's thoughts about Malazan or other books, you can check out the links in our episode description. I'm sure I'll be back someday. Let us know what you think of the show at 10 Very Big Books on Twitter and Gmail. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it was a delight. Thanks for having me. It was really cool. I've been listening to the show since the beginning. Excited other people are and uh Pumped um, on the show. That was great to have you on, and uh, it was a great discussion. I, I really got a lot out of it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, if you stay after the music, me and Andy are briefly going to talk about the Stormlight Archives, as I said. So, <laughs> oh, that was real. I'm very excited now. All right. Uh, once again, AJ, play us out. to witness to which is something we're going to report separately right after this but i essentially don't talk about the stormlight archives just would love to hear some big picture thoughts what you think about this series i picked up rhythm of war never read it but it's around in my life yeah mine mine is books bookshelf over there still haven't read it i think brandon sanderson tells cool stuff those stories are way too long and are super thin thematically that's my 10 second thoughts yeah i mean uh i i i fairly uh it's funny i i it's kind of funny in that i feel like i started this podcast when i am the least interested in fantasy i've ever been you know <laughs> and that's just my candid feeling and, and i think here's an example i read those books you know and what's tough is you you know, I, I sometimes i don't know if i'm losing interest in genre fiction or it's just the fiction I'm reading, you know, and it's almost certainly the latter, right? I'm sure there's some great books out there I just haven't picked up. And I got to tell you, it doesn't help that nowadays the only English books I read are the Malazan Book of the Fallen, you know? <laughs> so it's this, I live in this weird world where I'm just only reading Japanese and then when I read the written word in English, it's Malazan. So it's, it's a funky feeling. But anyway, I think those Stormlight books are pretty good. I've never read anything else by the dude. Uh, and frankly, there's too much. I'm not going to read it all. Nice try. Yeah, no, I'm not going to, you know, too much. Yeah. But like sometimes I'm there and I'm just like, guy, I don't need to hear about all this stuff. You know, he's like trying to tell me about yep. like, I don't know how something works in the world. And I'm like, I don't don't care. N next move on, move on, please. You know, I think I would have a very mild take about these books if it wasn't like the biggest exactly. selling 
fantasy series in the world. I just don't understand. There's some cool element, elements of it. I like some of the characters. I, I mean, I've read 3,000 pages of it, so obviously there's something in it that I find somewhat interesting and, like, you know, pleasurable. But, like, the fact that it is the, like, the one thing that gets, I don't know, a Fortnite character or whatever the fuck, like, that, like, it's everywhere, I just don't understand. I It's just not to the level of excellence that I would understand it having that sort of platform here's what i'll say you called it light thematically which i would uh broadly agree with um so me and josh studied classical music together right and uh you know classical musicians and classical composers have some pretty serious opinions about music as you can imagine and some of them are pretty elitist you know and some people would always be like you know well like you know, modern music, pop music, it's like not as sophisticated. It's not good music. It's not like, you know, Mahler. It's not Stromberg, you know, whatever. And I always thought this was a fucking stupid opinion. You know, I always <laughs> found it extremely dumb. You know, listen, Schoenberg's great. I think I love Schoenberg. However, people love Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, there's a commercial element to it. You know, there's a capital element to it. But Obviously, people love his music. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been deeply emotionally moved and had their lives changed by his music. You know, is it sophisticated? No, it's not actually that complicated a music. You know, like if we wanted to break out the charts, it's not not a lot going on, you know. (laughs) However, it's obviously deeply affecting to people. And that's like, do I think Brandon Sanderson's a particularly good writer? You know? Do I think his sentence, like, you know how you read some sentences and you're just like, man, crazy good sentence. I couldn't have done that if I tried. Like, this this author's just <laughs> yeah. on the next level. No, I don't yep. think that when I'm reading his work. I'm just like, okay, he's like, he's doing it, you know? But, like, obviously, he can put together a fucking book. And he can put it together well. And I enjoy reading it. And I don't think the prose is, like, gonna change your life. I don't think it's particularly poetic. And I don't think it's particularly moving. But like, as you said, like, I pretty much enjoy reading his books and he like knows how to put it together. So I would never be one to knock him for not knowing how to put together a book because God knows I could not do it. Like, you know, he, he knows how to do it. And a lot of people think so. But it is kind of funny. It's like the, the biggest, the biggest one all the time. Yeah, I, I wish I knew what that was. You know what I mean? Like, I wish I knew why the people liked this Bruce Springsteen as opposed to, like, Robin Hobb or... I, I Like, Steven Erickson, I kind of understand because it is yeah, sort Eric, of a... And listen, I think Steve knows this. He's not... It, it's it's an yeah. acquired taste. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, I understand I understand that. But, like, there, there are other voices out there that I think are a little bit more digestible that just do things a little better. But, you know, whatever. And I have read, I should say, for people who are going to get not upset, well, there's always... Sanderson people get upset about this I have read all the Cosmere so it's not like I I don't have street cred in the Brandon Sanderson area I've Listen, read it all don't tell me to read Elantris I, I would be interested in reading some of the, the other stuff I just resent this idea that I remember reading Stormlight Archives and I think between two or three or between three and four they were like you should read this short story or novella and I resent this like I I'm reading I what I I should be able to read these 10 books and have the total experience <laughs> You know what I mean? That's that's my point of view. If, if I, in my mind, yeah. if you can't read the 10 books in the 10 book series and not have a total experience, there is a fundamental failing going on, you know? Yeah. yeah but right. um, anyway, I, I really loved Way of Kings. If kind of uh, have been less impressed since then. Looking forward to getting a Warbreaker eventually. But as I mentioned, I just don't read that many English books. You should you should get it in Japanese just to continue I your... I don't know if there is a Japanese translation of it. I know they translated some of them, but anyway. Interesting uh, interesting guy, but I think uh, I think it seems like he's going to be around for a while. I think... I I would imagine so. If, if someone out there is listening and really wants to see someone lay into Brandon Sanderson, I have a 25-minute rant review on Oathbringer on my channel, which is the third book. I really didn't like that one. The first two I actually liked quite a bit with some problems. The third one I thought had a lot of bad elements to it. So if you really want to see some harsh thoughts on Stormlight Archive, go knock yourself out. Um, yeah, I was. I, I definitely liked the first two more than the third, but I, I'm going to read the fourth, but we'll see if I, uh, you, know, you know, I'm in, I'm in no rush. We got, we time. got time. We got time. The thing the is, and we, you talked about why, like, why is he the one who broke so big? I think in somewhat it's because 
there's just such a commercial element now and he's just like working like a machine he writes so many books and now there's this whole interconnected thing he has such a big social media presence honestly it's just like he's building this brand he's managed this brand i think it's a huge part of the success and he's an incredible like ah. nice guy like i watch like his videos i've seen the interviews i saw him at a conference once like he seems like a generally really great guy and especially for someone who is a mormon to have like gay characters in his books i think is pretty cool but anyway i don't i, I don't know what i'm saying here but he's a nice yeah. guy I, I i didn't know there were that many gay characters in his books but um there's not that there's one which is more, one more than i thought that a practicing Mormon would have. Yeah. So, you know, and I do know he's serious about his faith. No, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not really here to tear him down. As I said, I feel like you got to give it to him. And I like, I like the, what I've read. I just don't, you know, no. so anyway, that was a little, a uh, little bonus talk. <laughs> that's, that's our ending on yeah. Stormlight. Uh, all right. See ya. All right. Yep. That's it.